want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scosco, and my guest in this episode is Rob Walling. Rob is a serial entrepreneur, and he currently runs TinySeed, the first startup accelerator for SaaS bootstrappers. Before that, Rob built seven startups and sold several of them, most recently Drip, which was acquired by Leadpages. He's the host of Startups for the Rest of Us, the most popular podcast for bootstrapping entrepreneurs, with more than 10 million downloads to date over the last 10 years. And if all of that wasn't enough to keep him busy, he also runs MicroConf, which is the most well-known conference and community for non-venture track company founders. In this conversation, Rob and I go deep on the reasons and the mindsets to build non-venture track startups, the idea of what is enough and where to start if you're interested in building what we like to call a small giant startup, a company that is somewhere in between a tiny side project and a billion dollar unicorn. Rob is one of the most generous, pay it forward founders out there. He's built an enormous community of entrepreneurs that he's helped over the last 15 years. And if you have ever been interested in starting your own business and thought that, hey, there's got to be some third option between some tiny little side project and a billion dollar Silicon Valley VC fueled unicorn, then this is the episode for you. So please enjoy learning from the master of startups for the rest of us, Rob Walling. Rob, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. It's a real pleasure. So as we were saying right before we hit record, I hadn't quite realized it, but you're actually someone who's been a pretty tremendous influence on my thinking over the last, I'd say, five to seven years. In a very like you and your partner, Mike, have done the podcast startups for the rest of us for over 500 episodes now, which is as a fellow podcaster, I have to say that is a tremendous. So what an accomplishment. What does that feel like, actually? A little bit surreal. It's like anything you do for 10 years that you just show up for every week. At a certain point, it just becomes what you do and you stop questioning, oh, am I going to do this? It's just, oh, this is on the schedule and I, it will not. It's like the Jerry Seinfeld thing of, of drawing the X every, every day and getting, you know, writing a joke every day and getting a streak. At a certain point, you get a year, two years, three years. And we've had times where it was, you know, one of us got really sick or whatever. One of us was on a month long vacation and we either record in advance or we just, I mean, I've recorded solo episodes that are like 17 minutes long of just me talking through questions like six hours, you know, before it went or 24 hours or whatever before it went live to ensure that we had something on the feed. It became a, a challenge. So I don't think about it as, as a decade. I just think about it as checking the box every week and, um, and yeah, that's it. I was curious, when you think about your own journey of the last, call it 10 years, building audiences, building communities, what are those rhythms for you? You know, what is it about it that, that really speaks to you? Yeah, well, I mean, so I started off as a blogger. I was, I was a software developer. And then I started thinking, I don't want to work for people endlessly. You know, I, it just got old, not having equity, not having something that I was building for the long term. And so I started launching little software products on the side. And at that time, I was like, you know, I'm going to start writing about this because I don't see anyone else doing this. And I'm curious if there are other folks who want to do it. And so I, I built a cadence there. And that was probably 15 years ago that I started. And I would blog once or twice a week. That was a lot. That was way more work than podcasting, to be honest, because mm. cranking out a blog post, you know, if, I don't know if you've done it or, or how long it takes you. But Oftentimes, it would take me eight or 10 hours to really get a really good idea, framework, theory, refine it, and, and push send. So that, but that taught me the discipline of shipping frequently and, and regularly. And then the podcast, though, really became, you know, which we started in 2010, that became a, an amazing weekly rhythm and kind of a chronicling of, of our journeys. Everything else... Well, I guess the the one other rhythm is, is MicroConf, which is, you know, the, the conference that we run. And that 
we started doing it once a year and then we started doing it twice a year and then three times a year. And that's been a nice rhythm as well of like, hey, we, we just have to show up. This is an in-person event. There is no not mm-hmm. doing it. There is no not <laughs> showing up because you sell tickets and you book a venue and you, you, it's a forcing function. And I actually like, as much as I'm averse to, you know, I'm unemployable, I don't like authority, you know, like a lot of, of entrepreneurs, but I like forcing functions that kind of, it's just like, hey, I know you, you're kind of, you're pretty introverted and you have social anxiety and you don't necessarily love going to conferences, but you have to show up for this because you're on stage. Um, and so those rhythms, it's same with the podcast. Like it was really hard to do early on for the first six months, probably very stressful, very hot under the call, not angry, but like I would, hair would stand up on the back of my neck and I would painfully listen to every episode. But we just made the commitment that we were going to do it. And then by the time you're not scared of it anymore, you know, the, the terror of firsts is what I call it, right? It's the first time you do anything. It's pretty damn scary. And the 50th time you do it, it, it tends not to be. So those are the yeah. rhythms I think that have, that have pulled me through. Everything else in my life, in my professional life, like in that 10 or 15 year period, you know, I've had more than 20 software products and web products and, and courses and books. And those really haven't had a cadence or a, um, a forcing function. And that's been fine. But I, I've, I've been glad to have these in my life for sure. I think it, it would be hard. It would be hard to only have stuff that I could totally choose what to do when, because the paradox of choice, right? It's like, what do I, what do I work on today is actually a pretty challenging thing to ask yourself. Also, it reminds me a lot of a, a quote by, I think it's James Clear, where he says, you know, entrepreneurship is a personal development journey disguised as a business venture. Mm, yeah. And I'm curious, how is Rob different today than Rob of, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago? Oh my goodness. So much, man. There's like a, a level of efficiency and productivity that I just didn't even understand. I would perseverate and write these thousand word emails to people. And now my emails are very short, like the tactical things, right? I would manage my to-do list in a piece of paper and copy it over every day. And now I use Trello. There were all these... I wasted a ton of time is the bottom line. And, and as things have effectiveness is picking the right things to do. And that's the other thing is I just don't do a bunch of stuff that comes across my plate. Now I get emails, I get requests, I get whatever, and I evaluate and I say no a lot. And that's a luxury you don't have when you're first starting out because you kind of, I think you should say yes to everything at the start. But I definitely spent a ton of time doing things that really didn't move the ball forward. And I think I spend a lot less time doing that today. I work less and get way more done than I used to. Does that make sense? There was another thing. I mean, I grew up in a family where I was raised with like a lot of fear and a lot of like, there's like social anxiety and like fear of strangers, but almost in a, to a degree that like, you know, was unhealthy. Um, and I had, and social confidence of like going into a room of people and just being like, Hey, everybody, I'm going to start talking was nowhere in my tool belt at all. And that's where podcasting became that first thing. Because I could write, right? I could write essays and I would painstakingly think about them and I'd publish them and then I'd be all nervous. Someone was going to criticize it. Over the years, people criticized it and you get better at it and it didn't bother me anymore. But then getting on the microphone and being like, well, I'm not going to be interesting or I'm not smart enough. People are going to criticize these points or, you know, you're just way overly critical of yourself. I was not taught growing up the skills that I learned over the podcast, which is you put your thoughts out there, you do the best you can. Sometimes you'll be right. Sometimes you won't be but it's better to ship and figure it out later. You know, as long as you're not shipping uh, medical devices, you know, airplane. <laughs> control, I mean, there, there are exceptions to this, but I'm talking in, in the broad startup world that we're doing is to get it out there. And um, so there was a self-confidence, I think, that built in me over those years. 
I can really resonate with that. The perfectionism is something I have certainly battled with for years. It seems to be a common thread of many people in our, our sort of corner of the world, people who are out to, to build something, whether that's a podcast, a, a startup, a whatever. What advice do you give people around perfectionism? Well, I, th- I think perfectionism is really fear of criticism. And it's fear that you're going to be wrong or that if it's not perfect, someone's going to call it out and they're going to make you look stupid. And so it's it's getting over that hurdle of realizing, A, if it's good enough, most people will say, hey, that's pretty cool. Thanks for shipping that podcast episode or that book or that course. And to realize that you'll pretty much at, at scale, you'll pretty much always have some negative feedback and to either ignore it or to take it for what it's worth, you know, because sometimes it is, sometimes it is truly like, oh, yeah, so this course wasn't for you. Hey, here's a refund, you know, or you publish, publish a blog post and one person says, oh, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then you're like, yeah, but like, it's easy to criticize from the stands. I, I spent eight yep. hours writing a blog post and you spent three minutes writing two sentences. So I'm actually in this case going to disregard it, you know, or if a friend reaches out to me and says, hey, what you wrote there is really not this and that. It's like, okay, now I'm going to listen because I have context. You're not just trying to attack me on, on the internet, you know? But it's, it's learning how to deal with negativity and not bucketing it all into, into one bucket, I think. As well as, you know, again, perfectionism, which was the, the thing you actually asked about. It really, it's getting over the fear of shipping. And um, it's realizing that perfectionism, unfortunately, as much as I like to ship really good stuff and ship fully baked things, it is a huge waste of time because the odds are, depends on what you're shipping, but if you're shipping a startup or you're shipping a product, odds are, no matter how perfect you think it is, you will get it out there and you'll only be about 80% of the way there and you're, that you have to iterate quickly. I run Tiny Seed, which is a, a startup accelerator for SaaS bootstrappers. And when we launched... It was a tweet and a landing page and an email to my people. And the landing page was pretty hacky and I had built it in 24 hours. And we took applications three months later, I think. And the application process was like a hard-coded Squarespace form that went into a Google spreadsheet that had a Zapier trigger to do something else. And, and it was kind of... It was not kind of. It was a complete kludge. And I hacked it together in a couple of days. It was not perfect. It was far from that. But we got almost 900 applicants and we, we funded this first batch of, of you know, B2B SaaS companies that we were, wanted to and we got it off the ground. Now, the second batch, we completely redid it with like legitimate software and, you know, because we, we proved the market. And so was the first one perfect? No. And was even our messaging perfect? No. And I spent a lot of time writing the, the copy. And within two months, it was like, oh, that isn't actually on point. Like that's not the value prop people want from a startup accelerator. So we had to pivot that. And so anything that I spent time perfecting in terms of messaging was kind of thrown out a couple months later. And so that's that's what I think. It's a learned skill, man. I mean, to, to your point of personal development, learning not to hang on to things for too long is is personal development that I think entrepreneurship um, you know, really teaches us. Yeah, 100%. The other one that I have to say just from my own experience that is like, there's a there's a phrase that a mentor of mine, a guy uh, named Brian Norgard, he's one of the first entrepreneurs I ever worked with. And he used to say this thing all the time where he's like, look, no one cares until they do. And I was like, and I used to really mess with me, but it was this idea that like, you know, don't waste so much time in that phase, like obsessing about it. Right. It's like ship it, learn what's wrong, do it better, ship again. And, you know, yes, at some point, maybe you have a giant audience or a giant user base or whatever. It's like, well, you can do it different then. But right now, just ship the damn thing. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think there's a luxury in not having a giant audience when you start out. Because when I look back at early essays I wrote at early 
copy that I wrote in these tiny little software niches that I operated in at early podcasts that we recorded. They weren't very good. They're objectively not that good, but I had 20 people reading, 50, 100, 600. By the time I had 1,000, I was a lot better and it was practice and it was grinding it out. And most people don't want to hear that, that it's hard work, you know, and that it's writing Mm -hmm. an essay every week for, for 52 weeks or shipping a podcast every week for 10 years. When I objectively, and I'm not saying this to be humble or anything, but the podcast was terrible. Like I listened back to the first five episodes and they're (laughs) awful. We are two software developers on the mic. We were blogger software developers. So we almost wrote out word for word everything we said, almost. So we're almost reading the podcast episodes. So they're stilted, they're stiff, there's no conversation, you know, they're bad. But it got us on the mic and it got us shipping and it wasn't got perfect. We knew it. Yep, got us in the game. Same thing, public speaking. I I wrote my book, uh, my first book, Start Small, Stay Small. And I self-published that and I was like, oh, this will sell a few thousand copies and it's like done really well um, since then. And it got me a bunch of speaking gigs. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. That was tough because I was not a good speaker at the start. And I spoke in front of some large audiences and kind of tanked out one in particular that I remember. And I remember thinking, I need to be better at this before I do that again in front of 400 people. You know, speaking of having that large audience is almost, it's, it's tough at the, at the start before you have the practice of, of learning your message and learning your voice and, you know, just getting better at, at communicating these things. Yeah, no, I'd, actually, I'd love to go a little bit deeper on that. So just, just as a bit of context for this. So many of the people listening to this are in the early stages of building something, right? One of the common things that I think that they're all trying to do that I think you're a pro at at this point is community building and, and as that relates to audience building. And so I'd love to actually talk a little bit more about that. You know, when I, when I was looking, when I was getting ready for this conversation, you know, I went back through a bunch of material from MicroConf, which is a phenomenal conference for, for self-funded startups and bootstrappers. Everyone, please go check it out. Uh, we'll link to all the stuff in the show notes. In particular, there's a really great YouTube playlist that's like the best starting point for building a... I can't remember exactly the title, but it's basically like, if you're thinking about doing this, like watch this playlist first. There's a couple different talks in that playlist about basically how to build this over time. And I, and I love you to talk a little bit about um, the stair step approach, because I think a lot of people in this audience are not going to be familiar with that. Uh, but also for someone who's at the early phases of the journey, how do they find and connect with and cultivate an audience? Because it, there, there seem to be such advantages to continuity. I'll call it that, right? Like building something for this, building and growing with the same audience or the same market over years. And I mean, there's a lot of great examples, but it seems like you accrue these advantages over time. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about all that. Yeah, for sure. The, there are huge advantages to it. And I'm not sure I realized them at the start. I think I'll start by saying building an audience and building a community are two different things. Because you can have a blog or a podcast or write a series of books. And like Seth Godin might be a good example of that where he has a huge audience. I wouldn't say he's built a community. To me, community is interconnecting other people. You know, it's, it's that network effect. And I built an audience on purpose and built a community on by accident. And... I didn't set out when I started blogging to connect other people. I didn't realize the value of it. And in fact, I disliked so many of my jobs. And it was typically because I was in Dilbert work environments, you know, but I was like, I was, a, you know, can you imagine me? I'm this ambitious, like developer. I'm teaching myself coding on the side and, and learning new languages and I'm building products on the side. And then I go into a Dilbert office where it's like, what are you people doing? You know, and it wasn't everybody, but it was just that it was so soul sucking that I made the decision. I was like, look, I'm going to build my whole thing was I'm going to build software companies that are solo. Uh, I'm going to be a solopreneur, single founder, no employees. I just don't want to work with people because I thought people were the problem. It turns out 
it's the wrong people. You know, it's it's being yeah. around <laughs> the people you don't want to work with. When you can handpick the people you work with, it's they make the journey, right? So start blogging, build up an audience RSS feed and then, you know, email. And then when we start the podcast, we built the audience. And what we realized, we, we launched a little online community. It's now called Founder Cafe that people were hanging out in forums and there was, they would answer each other's questions. That was the moment where like when I didn't have, when I wasn't the expert anymore and where other people were helping one another, it was a huge epiphany. And then when we said, all right, let's get everybody together in a room. Uh, we're going to start this conference and it's for small software companies. So micro conf and we show up and there's, you know, a hundred of us in a room. That was amazing. But they still came to see me and Mike, who were the, at the time, the co-hosts of the podcast and had built that, that up. Within two years, I would meet people at MicroConf and they'd say, Hey, Rob, it's a pleasure to meet you. You know, what, what brings you here? And I was like, <laughs> that's the moment. That's the moment where this become, you know, microconf itself became the community became bigger in my mind, like bigger, more powerful. There were more connections. They didn't need to know who I was to come to the event. The event itself was a draw. The community itself was a draw. And I mean, to, to build that, it was, I'll say it was accidental, but it was, there was a little bit on purpose, right? Because what, what happened is we saw as we connected people, there's this exponential value of you get, you know, 10, 10 people in a group is not 10 connections. It's mm-hmm. 10 factorial connections, right? It's 10 mm-hmm. times 9, times 8, times 7, times 6, times 5, because everyone's connected to everyone else. And that just goes, and when you have 100 or you have 1,000, it is exponentially uh, more valuable. And building that was, it was two things. One, it was, ha- you have to have the audience first, I think. Like, I, it would be really hard to build a community without a bunch of people that you can kind of get together all at once because mm-hmm. building it from scratch it's a two-sided marketplace, right? You need sure. a bunch of people in a room and having the audience allows you to just email 10,000 people and be like, by the way, I'm starting a Slack channel, which you know we did two months ago called MicroConf Connect. For me, it's re- I use this phrase, relentless execution. And that's a little... It turns some people off because it sounds like this aggressive thing, which I'm not. All I mean is you just fucking show up every day or every week. Yep. But I don't, I don't know how many parallels there are to community building. I see community building less as a stair-step thing and more as showing up, engaging people and realizing that there's more value in them connecting to one another than there is. Even though they show up for you or they show up for your speakers at your event, the real value that they stay for is the community. Mm, yeah. The thing that made all of that possible was the way you dialed into a particular audience that you wanted to serve over the long haul, right? I think I've heard you say that the moment you saw an inflection point when you started shifting from just sort of talking about all kinds of things generally to really focusing on, on bootstrapped and, and self-funded startups. And so the, the thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on as it relates to that is for someone who wants to go on that journey, someone who's like, okay, I get it, Rob, like I'm on board for the, for the, I'll push that boulder up the hill. I'll do it. But they're not sure exactly where to start in terms of choosing that audience. How do you, how would you guide someone through that? I mean, the only, the, if you're going to be in an audience for, or, you know, building an audience, be in a community for five or 10 or 15 years, I, you have to love it, right? I can't imagine recommending. Some people say, hey, I'm going to start a startup. Do I need to love the industry? Like I, I personally acquired like, you know, a wedding website builder that was software product. And I acquired eBooks on like bonsai trees and this and that. And I marketed them and sold mm-hmm. them and they were good products. I don't particularly love the wedding industry nor the bonsai tree. So to, can, can you build products and sell them? Can you build a startup in an industry you don't care about? Yeah, I do think you can. Can you build a community in an industry you, you know, or in a, a niche or whatever you don't care about? I don't think you can. I, I think you have to have the love for it. And so that'd be the first thing I'd start with is like, you, got, you need to have some interest in it. And then the second piece is, 
I think you either need expertise to be just ahead, just enough ahead of other people that you can help teach them and you can share thoughts and frameworks and ideas that other that are original and other people aren't. Or you need, there's the interview, there's a journalist approach to it. You know, you think of like perhaps the Andrew Warner approach with Mixergy or Chris Yates with Rhodium Weekend where they've had successes, but they're not, it's not as if they had massive startups and can point to like, this is why you should listen to me. But it is like, hey, I'm the one here and I'm asking the questions and I'm creating interesting content around this topic, even though I'm maybe not the expert, I am, you know, the journalist or the person who's covering it. And those are the two models that I've seen work. And then you go for, and then you plug and you crank and you, you know, and then five years later, there's 500 people listening to you, you know? So no, I really love that. And I think that's a great pivot point into talking a little bit about some of the more, the mindsets that really shape this type of entrepreneurship. So I guess one of the things I have a question for you about is a lot of the people I speak to in this audience feel torn. And I feel this, this tension as well, right? On the one hand, I feel this pull to like go big and you know, do all the things and and have the biggest impact you possibly can, right? And then on the other hand, I feel this pull, like all the things that you like to talk about or that I hear in in the microconf community around like, hey, build a great company. It just doesn't have to be the biggest thing ever, but have freedom and purpose and relationships. Like those things resonate with me very strongly as well. Is this a tension you come across? And, And if so, how do you help people navigate that? Because I find myself certainly feeling that pull from both directions and I'm not sure what to do about it. Yeah, definitely encounter it. And, you know, I myself came up thinking 20 years ago thinking, well, the only way to start a software company is to, you know, software startup is to raise a bunch of money because that's what everyone does in quotes. And the moment I had the realization of, oh, I have this little software product that's doing two grand a month or three grand a month. I just need a few more of these and I can quit my job. And that's really ultimately what I wanted to do at that point in my life was to have to own my time. It was less about impacting the world, dent in the universe. It was truly like, I want to make myself a better life for now. That was my step one, right? Of getting freedom and then moving on to how can I impact others around me? So I've absolutely experienced that same kind of same thought process. And in fact, when I started blogging and podcasting, I, I think I went really far. I was never anti-funding. Even like the first page of my book from 2010 is like, I'm not anti-funding. I'm just anti everyone thinking the only way to start a software company is to raise funding, right? But I did go pretty hard in the direction of just build a lifestyle business. Like all you need is eight grand a month and and you'll have freedom and that'll be amazing. And because that was my goal for several years. And I think that appeals, I think that appeals to a lot of people, but I, I do think that that is not the end goal as much as I thought it was 15 years ago. And over time, my thinking, the the beauty of it is it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can start, the pattern that I'm seeing with myself and with a lot of other people is that, that they kind of, they kind of stair step their way. And you'll look, you look at me, you mentioned Patrick McKenzie earlier on. There's, I mean, I can name a bunch of people whose names your audience doesn't know, but I, I wrote about this in a blog post called the stair step approach to bootstrapping. And it's, the idea is that you do start small and you do just focus on one thing. And that one thing is probably to get to your you know, first thousand dollars in revenue. And don't think about, boy, I need to go and start the next Facebook or impact the whole world. It's like, there's plenty of time for that. You'll get there. But don't try to play in the major leagues when you've never played baseball before because you don't know mm-hmm. how to hire, how to manage, how to you know, write code, manage a product, just do whatever. These things are really hard to do as, as much as 
Silicon Valley makes it look easy or makes it sound easy. There's a lot of luck involved. I, I talk about successes like hard work, luck and skill. It's a combination of those three. And when you start off, you don't really have many skills. Maybe you have one that you do at your day job. But you don't. if you're a developer, you don't tend to know how to write copy, run ads, do sales, and actually do really good UX, right? Or if you're a... You know, whatever. You get the idea. You have one skill. Uh, hard work, I think, is just going to be a prerequisite for most. And that luck factor, the smaller you aim and the more niche you are, I think you need less luck to have some success. And I think if you try to build Uber, you need a lot of luck involved. And again, Travis had a bunch of skills. Travis had a huge network. Travis had a lot of hard work, the founder of, of Uber. But he needed a ton of luck for that to work. And so the idea that that I come from is this idea of, let's have a much higher chance of success. Right. Let's let's start smaller, but have like an eighty or ninety percent chance of building an app that does two grand a month, or a software, or a, you know, an info product, or a course that gets you to a few thousand a month. And a lot of that involves building an audience and building community. And then you just leverage that up. You know, you expand that and you keep pushing the boulder. And you you do this enough times that whether you have start one course and then have a second or third or fourth, or whether you have a small software product, second, third or fourth, small e-commerce site in a tight niche, so you're not competing with Amazon, second, third or fourth, so you get to the point that you can buy out your own time. And now you own all your own time and it's like, okay, I have 40, 50, 60 hours a week that I can then leverage up. Then I can start thinking about, and I have skills, right? So I, I've made some money, I own my time. And I've built confidence and I've built these skills of now I know some copywriting. I build the tool belt of maybe I know Google AdWords or pay-per-click and Facebook or community building mm-hmm. or content or SEO or whatever the tools are. And then you start leveraging up and getting more ambitious with each one. And so perfect example of this. And again, I could probably name 30 or 40 examples of people in the microconf community who have done this. But my road was doing a bunch of small little niche businesses like I talked about earlier with the bonsai trees and the uh, you know the ebook and these kind of random things and then I saved up enough money from there from those products to buy this small little SaaS app called Hitail which was an SEO tool I grew that from $1500 a month when I bought it up to about 30,000 a month with almost no expenses and that was most money I mean I grew up making $5 an hour. And my first job out of college with an engineering degree was $17 an hour. You know, I mean, I, I did not. My dad was an electrician. I was solidly working class. So to build something mm-hmm. to 30 grand a month is like, what is, what just happened? Life-changing. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely yeah, life-changing. Totally. You know, you know, it mm-hmm. took me 11 years, mm-hmm. but I like to throw numbers at things. I mean, just putting in the work, 70, 80% chance at each step that the next step was going to work compounds yep. versus... I am the reason there are Silicon Valley successes is because there's a thousand darts thrown at a dartboard and 10 of them land. And we, again, survivor bias. Do any of us mm-hmm. hear of the other 990? Usually not, you know, unless TechCrunch yeah. says, you know, or F company, you know, it says, oh, hey, there, <laughs> everybody got laid off. Yeah. There's a stat that I saw the other day that I think is very relevant to what you're saying that most people probably don't know, which is that in Silicon Valley and in the world of high tech entrepreneurship, as, as it's represented there, Everything there is driven by what's called the power law. And it basically what that says is in a given year, if let's say 10,000 startups start in a given year, less than 10 will have, I believe it's 90, roughly 98% of all the value and all the returns, which means like that's 0.1%. Those are bad odds. Yeah. And that they're better odds for venture capitalists who build a portfolio of companies. They're really bad odds for the individual founder. Because like you said, it's one in a thousand in essence, right? If it's 10 out of 10,000, yeah. one in a thousand yep. odds. And that's so yes, I feel the appeal and the glamour. And I watch the social network, you know, the movie story, of Facebook, I watch all the Silicon Valley stuff. I do read Silicon Valley Press. And I, 
it's so appealing and they figured out a way to like draw us in. But there's this whole other real world, <laughs> real world that is like 98% of the, even the, I'll, I'll say tech because I'm involved with like 98% of the software companies that are launched. It's like an iceberg where they are not in the tech press. And we actually, my co-founder of, of Tiny Seed, uh, A.N.R. Volset, he just did some research where he went through 3,000 software companies that had exited. And he looked at how many of them got mainstream press, like tech press. And it was some ridiculously small amount. It was like less than a third. And like mm. most mm -hmm. of them had not raised any funding, you know? And and he wrote a, an article. It's called like Patio 11's Law software iceberg or something you can google it or you can it's in at, on tinyc.com slash latest but that's a perfect example of like that whole that's something that i am like microconf and tiny seed and startups for the rest of us is actually trying to actively encourage people to go do you don't need permission mm -hmm. to go do this you can build up skills over time and you can build real businesses for real customers to pay real money in a way that you know to me it just involves a lot less luck I don't like, mm -hmm. I like repeatable things that I think have a pretty high chance of success because I think that serves the more people well versus, Hey, come one in a thousand. We're just going to turn you through and everybody's really interested in the startup lottery ticket, you know, and, and <laughs> one person will hit it out of a thousand. But that has always felt not, uh, I have not loved that approach. I really resonate strongly with what you're saying. I think that represents a lot of the shift in my own career of, you know, I'd been purely in the venture backed world. And then at the end of God, what was it? 2014, I want to say I, I did my first self funded startup uh, with a friend and, and uh, did that for a couple of years. And then I sold my part of the business to him and we went our separate ways. And, you know, I, I've been doing other things since and I feel like I'm just coming back around to this. So I guess one of the questions I have for you is, let's just take me as a, as a case study, right? As, as someone who's coming back to this, who's got a lot of experience in the, in the tech product world. You know, I was an engineer and then I've been a, in a product manager and have built all sorts of things for the last, whatever, 10, 11 years. So it's not like a cold start for me, but I'm trying to figure out, okay, where does somebody who does have a, a bit of experience under their belt, where do they start? Like, so where, where do I start and how do I go about figuring out where, what to do? You know, I've, I've seen, there's some of the stuff you talk about. There's, you know, Brian Castle's stuff around productized services. There's Amy Hoy and the sales safari. There's kind of like all this like glut of options, so to speak. And I'm sort of sitting here going, okay, I know I'm good at building stuff. I've done that for years now, but where do I start? And there's a bit of a paradox of choice thing going on. Or do I start back at step one on the stair step? Maybe that's the answer. Uh, you know, it's tough for me to do a one, like a one size fits all recommendation. I think a lot of it depends on your personality and and knowing like knowing yourself talk about personal development one of the biggest things that i've learned over the past 15 years is to learn my strengths and weaknesses 3 4 years ago uh mike and i recorded our podcast on skype and then we switched to zoom and the audio quality was always kind of crappy and we we're always on the same track and i said we could do a double ender which is where each of us record locally but it's just such a headache Someone should mm -hmm. build some software <laughs> to, to do this. Well, then Zencaster came along and it blew, blew our minds. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then there were problems with it. There's some audio tracking and the other stuff you and I were talking about. And then Squadcast came along and, you know, they're an even better version. And so that's just a thing of like, if you're a podcaster and you have issues and you know that you're a developer, then to me, I would start digging into that pain point. You can't just say, I have that pain point. I should go build it. You have you can say I have that pain point now I have to find others with it and I have to find out if they're willing to pay for it right those are the three steps I know there's a pain do others have it you know can I reach them and are they willing to pay for it the other thing is if so I would I go through my own list I mean the Hittail 
uh, SEO keyword tool. I acquired that because I was a customer of it. It was failing and it was super valuable and it served a need that I needed and I figured I could find other people. Drip, which was an email service provider, felt fit a need that I had. And I went and talked to 17 other founders and said, do you have the same need of wanting a more advanced MailChimp? You know, a MailChimp mm-hmm. that has tagging and has automations, which they didn't have at the time. And people were saying, in essence, yes, I got about 11 people to say yes. So again, I found my own pain point. Then I went and found others with that pain point, And I asked them, would you be willing to pay 50 or $100 a month? The pricing moved around. But you know, are you willing to pay X for it? And people were like, yes. So that those are my steps. Now you can go out, you know, you mentioned like Amy Hoy's sales safari, that's going to Facebook groups and going to forums and combing through them and seeing finding external pain points, and then doing the validation I just said, you can do it yourself. There's advice that you should be the first customer. And it's like, yeah, kind of. I mean, I know a friend who built software for small movie theaters, like not big chains like AMC, but like mm-hmm. one-off theaters that are in your town. And mm-hmm. it's they it sell tickets online and it's some you know, POS type stuff. He didn't own one. He didn't run one. He is interested in the space and he heard, you know, someone had a need for it and he built it. But I don't think you need to be customer number one. And so Mm. all that to say, in your shoes, I would either look for pain points in your day-to-day workflows of recording podcasts or whatever else you do in your, you know, for your professional life right now. Or the other model that I've seen work quite well is to find a subject matter expert to co-found it with, you know, where you, where you're a developer and you have a friend or you have a partner or a spouse or whatever, who is a, you know, an architect or a um, interior designer batch one of tiny seed had this exact pairing and, and the wife was an interior designer and said this, all this software is so bad. And the husband was a developer and they paired up and they did it and they didn't, they did not stair step, but he had a ton of skills and she had the subject matter expertise. And, uh, you know, they did, they built a SaaS app called Gather that's in Tiny Seeds First Batch. So those are a few models. I mean, this, we could turn this, just this piece of the conversation into 90, 90 minutes or more, but uh, that's kind of high level th- how I think about it. Yeah, 100%. Let's pivot a little bit. For, for those who are not familiar, what is Tiny Seed? How'd you get here? Really, Tiny Seed sprang out of MicroConf. And so MicroConf, again, is, you know, started as the conference for self funded startup founders and has developed into, Three things really. It's it's still in person events once we can have them again because we're as we're recording this we're in the middle of uh, kind of COVID and quarantine stuff. It is an online community uh, called MicroConf Connect, which is like I mentioned earlier about eleven hundred people in a Slack channel, founders and aspiring founders, and it is like resources and education. So we have more than two hundred videos in our YouTube channel because we've been doing conferences for ten years. So we have one hundred and ninety something you know conference talks that are like from people like. Keaton Shaw and Steli Efti and Joanna Weeb and Jason Cohen, like really knowledgeable, some of the best talks in the space for these for this non-venture track, non-Silicon Valley, real business type of startup. So running MicroConf for well, at the time, maybe seven or eight years, and really seeing this need to have this in-between. I mean, you and I have kind of been dancing around this, but yes, there's bootstrapping or self-funding. And on the other side, mm-hmm. there's there's venture funding. And there mm-hmm. was never this in between of like, well, can I raise a little bit of money? What if I raise like two, mm-hmm. three, four hundred grand? I don't have to give away the farm. I don't have to become a unicorn. I can just use that to reach escape velocity and to become a real business and to build a five, 10, 15, 20 million dollar business and have that be an amazing outcome for everyone, you know, mm-hmm. because that can have life changing 
whether it's dividends come out of it, or if you decide to sell it, that can be an amazing outcome for the founders and for investors if they decide to put money in. And there really was not that we knew of an institutional way to do that. I had been after I sold Drip, I had been doing some angel investing, and I was really investing in these types of companies, these microconf, non Silicon Valley, non venture backed companies that I thought, hey, these this might be worth, you know, or not worth because you know a ten million dollar SaaS app that's growing can sell for five times, six times the annual revenue, right? So it's actually worth 50 or 60 million. I wasn't expecting any of these to become unicorns, right? Unicorn is a billion dollar valuation in Silicon Valley parlance. And eventually I got to the point where it's like, well, I'm kind of overweight in my portfolio. I'm overweight startups and, and there's not liquidity for you know many years. And I was talking about this whole concept of, of just being able to take some money because bootstrapping is hard. It's very hard. That's what I did with all my companies. And, and at times I wished I had raised some money, but there were no good options to look around and just be like, look, I want to raise a hundred grand, two, three hundred grand to hit that escape velocity. And so after uh, giving myself six months of downtime, I realized there's a, there's a real gap in the market. So I you know, hooked up with my co-founder, uh, Anar Volset, who is more on the finance side. Cause I didn't, yeah, I'm a founder. I'm in the startup space. I'm a podcaster. I like going to conferences and speaking. I don't particularly want to get knee deep in spreadsheets and figure out IRR and pitch invest, you know, yeah, cause to start a fund, you have to have to invest in it. So. He handles all that side of it. That's really what it is, right? It's the first startup accelerator for SaaS bootstrappers. It's for people who traditionally bootstrap and who just want to build a, a real company that they think can get to seven figures or eight figures. And that's, yeah, we, we've just launched our second batch of companies. And you can go to tinyc.com, you know, and see the list. Uh, but it's, it's some pretty killer SaaS companies. And we're actually fundraising for our second fund. Yeah, we raised about four and a half million for the first fund, which I don't know. By venture capital standards, that's just a, a rounding error. But like by my book, <laughs> never raised funding. I was like, this is incredible. We can fund 20 yeah. companies out of this, you know? And so we funded 10 in the first batch and 13 in the second, having a lot of success and have had more companies apply that we wanted to fund than we had money to fund. So this is a good problem mm-hmm. to have, but it's still a problem. You know, it's like, well, we, mm-hmm. we would have written maybe 20, 20 more checks at least, 25, 30, mm-hmm. like a lot. So yeah, so we're already back, you know, raising fund two right now. And actually, if you're listening to this and you're an accredited investor, and you can Google that if, if you don't know what it is, but uh, you know, it tends to be a high net worth individual. We are raising a fund for to invest in hundreds of these these real B two B SaaS companies. So that's tinyc.com/slash/invest, and you can poke around, you know, there to to find out more about what we're up to and if you're interested. I love it. I'm so glad you uh, explained that. Thank you. You know what? As I was listening to you describe the types of companies that Tiny Seed is doing, it occurred to me, I think maybe, I think there's a word that's central to the Tiny Seed and the microcon philosophy that is utterly missing from the Silicon Valley mindset. And I think that word is enough. And I was just listening to you. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There's a false dichotomy here of either like build me, you know, build a billion dollar company or you're building some, you know, bullshit little thing that no one's ever going to care about. And it's like, you know, a lot of people that I've, I've been thinking about this are like, well, is, is there anything in the middle? You know, is there something between like a little joke of a thing and, and, you know, Facebook? And it's like, of course there is. You know, there's, there's, you can build, as you just said, there are people building great companies that are doing, you know, significant revenue for, I'd say 99.999% of the world standards, you know, they're doing 5 million a year, 10 million a year, and they're creating great companies and great workplaces and great lives for everybody involved. They're just not trying to take over the whole fucking universe. And uh, that idea of like, oh, there is such a thing as enough. And, you know, you, maybe there's another way than, chase, than, than spending your entire professional career chasing, you know, truly really chasing significance is what I think it is. 
Yeah, there's a, I, I really like that. Enough is such a, such a good way to put it. There's this difference between ambition and accomplishment for ambition and accomplishment's sake. You know, as much as we idolize Steve Jobs, he just really wanted to make a dent in the universe and he was worth, I forget, it was like 10 million when he was 20 and 100 million when, or no, it was a million dollars when he was 20 and 10 million when he was 21 and 100 million when he was 22. So he could have done anything he wanted. And, People get behind like, oh man, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and and Travis and WeWork. And it's like, these are these big companies and they've had this impact. I would argue that they have much less ability to actually help their employees and their customers and their um, their stakeholders. They have less flexibility to do that because their mandate is to just get fucking huge. And we see it with the implosions of Uber and how they treated their employees and how you know they treat their their drivers. We see mm-hmm. it with WeWork and how it's just a, a mess, you know. And and arguably, like Facebook, has it ha, is it a net win for the world? I think it's arguable. It's debatable. Whereas look at, you know, a base camp, a MailChimp, a convert kit, a, I can just, I could go for a hundred little SaaS apps, little being 1 million to a hundred million in revenue. They have the freedom and the infinite flexibility to treat their customers the way they want to be treated. And when their customers say, I want a refund, you can give them a refund. When your employees say, I want to take a month off or we want to work for our work weeks or we want to have the best health insurance ever, the board doesn't look there and say, you can't do that. It's too expensive. Or when you want to make mm-hmm. contractors into full-time employees so they can, or you want to overpay people, overpay, you know, I'm, I'm going to, when minimum wage is seven bucks, I'm going to pay them 15 because it's the right thing for, for me to do. In my opinion, you don't have this, this oversight of the mandate mm-hmm. of, Oh, no, I have to grow at all costs. I have to be grow, grow, grow or be profitable, profitable or whatever it is. And there are so many more companies like it's the long tail of startups. That's what this world yeah. is. And and again, I can name three that some people have heard of, but I can also name 97 others that you haven't that are, are seven or eight figure companies that make the right decisions because the founders want to. And they may have investors. So I'm not saying investment is bad. Again, tiny seed companies, they're going to make the right choice. You are an investor. <laughs> exactly. I'm an investor. And and investors who don't, you know, it's it's the mandate that gets in the in the way, right? The unicorn mandate suddenly says, I need, I need to achieve for achievement's sake and I need to become a billion dollar company. And the collateral damage, I kind of don't care about that. I buy tons of stuff from Amazon. Do I like the way they treat their employees? Not really. Why do they treat their employees that way? Because probably Bezos or investors or whatever have a mandate to do things a certain way, right? And it's to maximize shareholder value and it's to get as big as possible. And it's certainly at this point, Bezos is not doing it for the money. So why is he doing it? Because he wants to achieve stuff because his personality is achieve, achieve, achieve. And back to your word, he will never have enough. Whereas I think a lot of the founders, you know, if you sold a company, uh, let's say you just owned all of a company and you sold it for 10 million bucks and you pay your 20% cap, long-term capital gains and you had $8 million in the bank. Is that enough? I would say it's certainly enough that now I can, you know, you can live forever on that in essence if you're decent at managing money. Now you have the, the now you can do it what you want. And my guess is what you want, if you're a good person, is to go help people. Right. Mm-hmm. It's to go out yeah. and and whether it's teach people, invest in founders, you know, if that's your interest. I mean, that's how I look look at this. Like MicroConf started to help people uh, with the education of bringing speakers together to educate, and then it started helping them by connecting them to one another. And the podcast has always been the free way to do that. And then Tiny Seed is just that next level of like, if you want more help, if you want like really in depth mentorship, and you want to check, you know, you want to say you need 120 grand for one founder, 180 for two. 
that's just that next step. I, I truly view all of these things as ways to help ambitious startup founders who want to change. They don't want to change the world. They want to change their own corner of the world and they want to treat people right. And to be able, but to be able to do that, I mean, we're for profit, obviously. And, and to be able to do that in a sustainable fashion, um, cause I don't want to have to go, you know, personally go to donors and, and ask for that. And I also have to justify my time. I, I can't spend 40 hours a week and not have their, have a salary, you know, and, Sure. I could I could do that, but it's a personal thing. I won't, you know, I can't let let myself do that. That's where the enough comes in. I think I like that you uh, threw that out. Yeah, are you familiar at all with the the concept of zebra startups? And I'm doing air quotes here. Have you heard this? I have, and I'm I'm familiar with it, but not in depth. Like if you would define it for your your audience, it might help me <laughs> help me know yeah, even no, more. For sure. I was just looking it up again because I, I this is one I saw a while ago, but. And there's a couple articles uh, and essays about this that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, but it, it's, it's very similar to, it's kind of like, let's take the idea you just described around like building a company that's enough, right? Let's build a good company. Let's build a good business. You know, it doesn't have to be Facebook. It's sort of combining that with the freedom as a, as a founder and someone running a company to, to do it the way that feels right to you. And then I think in the zebra parlance, uh, there, they, I'm looking at this one particular article on entrepreneur.com. They describe it as being both, uh, quote, black and white, as in they are both for profit and for a cause. And I'm curious how you've seen that show up in, in the work you do in the companies you're engaged with, the, the idea of a cause being involved. That's something that I know has been a through line with, with my audience and in my own thinking as well. So it's just something that I think is top of mind. Yeah. So with Tiny Seed, that is not our like explicit goal. To, to fund companies with double bottom lines. I have invested in a couple companies like that. One is Bitwise Industries out in, it's in Fresno, California. And it's actually, as I'm looking through the same Zebra article you're in, I think they mentioned uh, first round capital, which I believe is now invested in them as well. And they are absolutely, a, you know, in Fresno, there's a lot of poverty and just not a lot of opportunity. And that is a, a, a double bottom line company. Personally, when I see a company doing both, I like I jump at the chance because that's how I'm I'm wired is to I want to help people yeah, and be same. able to make money. Are you kidding me? I mean, that was like the dream of yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So like I can write a book and help founders and I can make some money from it, or I can start a conference and do both, or I can start Tiny Seed and hope hopefully do both eventually. I'm certainly helping people now. It's whether it'll, you know, make money these it's funny when you throw out you raise a four hundred four point five million dollar fund, people think like that goes to your bottom line, but nope. Taking a small stipend salary for now, and and it, we only make money really if you know if uh, if the companies grow. But yeah, all that to say, I would I I would veer towards towards doing that, but we don't have like an explicit mandate to um to invest in in double bottom line companies. Hmm. Yeah, but yeah, to your point about like yeah, if you can if you can find a way to serve with joy and and also get paid for it, I mean hell yeah, that's that's the dream. I think it's fantastic. We're gonna go ahead and shift and close out here with some rapid fire questions. They're short questions, you know, that I just like to ask everybody. So the first one I like to ask people is so Rob, what is a quote that's important to you or a saying that's important to you and, and what about it speaks to you? There's a quote from Thomas Jefferson, and I'll paraphrase it because he used, you know, English from three hundred years ago, but it's the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I don't want it to imply that, man, all you need is hard work to get things done because I, we don't all start from the same place. So that's not, that's not what it says to me. But I do think that you can build some of your own luck by just putting in, you just put in time. And maybe that's biased by my own experience because I grew up running track, playing football and, and getting, I got straight A's in high school. And I, that wasn't easy. I, I wasn't naturally gifted in, in especially sports. 
And I just had to put in a lot of hours and I taught myself to code and I put in a lot of hours to do that. I mean, nights and weekends checking out books from the library. No one told me to go do that. I just worked hard because I thought it was a skill that would be helpful later. And so I do think that in life, you know, we each have that choice to work hard and try to create opportunity for ourselves. For sure. Rob, with, with all the types of companies you're working with in Tiny Seed, you know, where we're, we're trying to build these self-funded companies. Another, another way I've heard it said that I really like is build small giants, right? Companies that choose to be great rather than big. Uh, that's from a, a really good book of the same name. One of the things that I've, I've been wondering about lately is for someone who's trying to build the kind of company we're talking about here, how much should they look to use the tools, you know, the methods that are coming out of the, you know, hyper growth tech, uh, VC backed tech world? You know, how much do you find that that stuff is actually useful for people who are not trying to build a unicorn? I think that 10 or 15 years ago, it was there was very little overlap because so much of the information that was out there was not tactical. And it was all about building a deck and raising funding and maybe some stories of how Airbnb growth hacked or who, you know, whoever name whatever startup from the early 2000s growth hacked their way to something. And I think that was hurtful. It was a detriment to the, the movement we're talking about of just building real companies. Today, it's different. There was this shift around, it was around lean startup. It was around when microconf and startups for the rest of us were getting traction to being more tactical and less pie in the sky theoretical coming out of, of Stanford and Harvard where you'd read the, read the Harvard Business Review and be like, I would be like, this doesn't apply to me at all. I want to get to five grand a month in revenue. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, give me something to help. And that's why I went to the internet marketers who were talking about writing copy and how to do direct response and all that. And so there has been to, to a positive shift, I think, into practical frameworks that have led to where I believe it's about, I mean, if I were to throw a number at it, maybe 80% overlap between Silicon Valley high growth startups and what we're talking about, these real, these real businesses. And the, the overlap is stuff you said, like I think customer development is extremely valuable in both cases because you need to build something people want, whether you're going to become a million dollar company or a billion dollar company that you have to start with that foundation. I think that growth hacking is where that line may blur. And that's where as a founder, you have to ask yourself, is growth hacking just marketing? You know, is it just helping people discover you? Is it just lead generation? Well, then then cool. That to me, that applies to everyone, right? A marketing approach of running ads on Facebook or building content people want and getting traffic from Google. If that's what you're calling growth hacking, then yeah, that applies to both. If growth hacking is (laughs) <laughs> what people might call black hat stuff, or maybe you're spamming Craigslist, or maybe you're, you know, whatever. There are things that start to become on the uh, on the line that I think Silicon Valley. I don't want to paint all Silicon Valley. I think some folks at the grow with a grow all, at all cost mindset would say, "Well, ends justify the means. I need a billion dollar company, so I'm going to do it." Versus, we have the luxury, we have the freedom to maybe say, "I'm going to grow a little slower, and I'm not going to do things that I think ethically um, maybe I don't agree with." So I do think there's a lot of overlap. Now, with that said, the 20% that I don't think fits in our model is, number one, the, like I said, the stuff that is too much growth at all costs, that is the growth hacking, the, the black hat, the treating your employees like shit, the treating your customers or your contractors or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that, that we shouldn't. And I think that there's a lot of really high level stuff that I think doesn't apply. Like again, still coming out of Stanford and Harvard Business Review. And um, one example is like Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas. 
I don't know if you've read yeah. that book. Like, I think that's, I, I, Alex is great. He's got a great framework for like really complex Silicon Valley ish stuff. When every time I've read it, I always think to myself, this is a solved problem for these, for a, a $10 million business. You don't need to start here. And I don't know what value. I feel like this would be a waste of your time. So there are certain things that mm-hmm. are just a little too heady that I think are detrimental yeah. and not, not tactical enough, right? You need to be pretty tactical to grow a, a, you know, I'll say as I keep saying a smaller company, but it's like you said, it's a it's a, it's a small giant, and you just have to have I think boots on the ground in a way that some authors um, and it's usually academics don't. An adaptation of Alex Osterwalder's canvas that I like actually better for the kinds of stuff we're talking about here is it's called the Lean Canvas. It was adapted by a guy named Ash Maria. For anyone who's uh, who's familiar with him, if you if you like this idea but you want to get a little more tactical with it, check out that version, and we'll link to that in the show notes, of course. Sounds good. Yeah, I know Ash. He's a good dude. Oh, right on. Yeah, he's. I talked to him once many years ago, but uh, I followed his work and, and big fan. Okay, so we're gonna we'll go ahead and pivot back to the uh, the rapid fire questions. At this point in your life, you know, let's just say for the next phase, whatever that is, three years, five years, what does success look like for you? It is expanding the number of founders and aspiring founders that I can help through all three things, right? Through the podcast, just bringing more people into the fold to spread this message of enough, (laughs) to spread this message of you can build this without (laughs) venture capital, you know, build at all costs to help them through microconf by building the community, bringing people together to help them, you know, through tiny seed to, we can obviously help fewer there, but to help them grow companies. And that I think takes twofold. It's helping more people get further along on this track than otherwise would without us. And the other thing is diversity. And I think that's a huge diversity inclusion is just such a big issue in the startup space. And, and uh, it's, it's one that takes a long time to solve. But um, success is continuing to push both of those forward. I love that. So for someone listening to this who's like, okay, Rob, you sold me. I'm in. What's step one? What's, what's the homework? Depends on where they're starting from. Should we do a hypothetical? <laughs> yeah. So sure. tell me, where, like, is this someone who is a developer or a designer? Are they just, do they want to start a nonprofit and they've, you know, only worked a nonprofit? I mean, what, what is the... Well, let's ground it a little bit. So for someone who has, let's say they're, you know, call it five to 10 years into their career in some kind of discipline where they've been, let's, let's say as a developer or designer, someone who like is in the world of making stuff. They want to go down this path but they're really just not sure where to start, but they love everything you've said. And they're like, cool, I'm in. What would you say they should do as a starting point? I, I think they should learn first off, learn and then do, you know, and that's that balance of knowing yourself. Some people just learn, learn, learn too much and they consume for years and never do. And other people say, ah, other people say, you know, I don't need to do any of that learning. I'm just going to go do. And both of them are detrimental. Because there are people who have gone through this before. We've mentioned a few of them here. There's Patio 11. There's me. There's Amy Hoy. There's Dan Martell. There, you know, there are people out there teaching. And if you find that person that resonates with you, what's their body of work? Can you go back and read a hundred essays on their website? Probably, because all the people I've just named have been pretty prolific. Can you watch videos with them? Can you listen to podcasts? Can you watch their conference talks? Can you go to an event again once we're doing events again and, and meet up with them? And learn how they think about things and try to apply that to you. So that's what I would be doing in the background. As you learn or, you know, you it's basically, it's picking virtual mentors is really what it comes down to. I have virtual mentors that don't even know they're my mentors because I stalk them online. You know, I listen to their, their podcasts. I listen to their <laughs> interviews. I, when they write a blog post, I'm like, man, that's smart. That's such a good way to think about it. And that's a less tactical way. But the interesting thing is everyone I've named, and I, I could name four or five more, they each have 
we have slightly different approaches to how to do it. And none of them are right or wrong. It just depends on if it resonates with you. If you think, you know what, I really want to do that productized service thing, then, well, you should go look up Brian Castle. And uh, he has the productized podcast. And, you know, and just go down that rabbit hole because he's going to teach you some good stuff. And then you follow the steps and you do it and you can be in his community. And if you want to go build, stair-step your way and build a small software product or a small info product and then build up, well, you should probably read a bunch of my essays. You should probably buy my book. I don't make that much money for my book, but you know, and be in the MicroConf community and be around the other makers that are doing it. Um, there, are, there's IndieHackers.com. There are these communities that that will just naturally resonate with you. And I used to believe that I could do the stuff on my own, and that was a mistake because mm. I think you need other yeah. people around you, not only who are ahead of you and able to to give you a you know a, a helping hand or some advice, even if it's not direct, even if you're just reading their stuff, but also the other people around you who are at the same place as you, and you're kind of pushing them forward, right? You're all, you're, you're all pulling or pushing each other forward as a group. That's really a big reason we do um, Tiny Seed. We could have just done a fund and written checks. It would have been much, much less work on our part, but we do an accelerator. It's a year-long remote program with a group of you know, a dozen, 13 companies in the second batch. It's a ton of work, but we know the value of being around a tight community that can help, help one another out. I love that. So just in closing out, Rob, first of all, Thank you so much for your generosity of spirit. Like in all of your work, I mean, you've been at this for 15 years and your body of work speaks for itself. But as someone who's benefited from it and on behalf of everyone else who's benefited from it, thank you. Deeply appreciated and a lot of gratitude to you. Where can people find you online and what would you like to leave the audience with? Sure. So if, if folks, if they're listening to this, they probably listen to podcasts. And if you want to hear more of me talking about this every week for 30 to 40 minutes at Startups for the Rest of Us, you find it in all the... Um, startupsrestofus.com and all the podcatchers. And then um, if folks want to be get into that community side that I was talking about, MicroConf Connect, it, microconfconnect.com. You can go if you're a founder or an aspiring founder. Uh, you can get into this Slack channel with 1,100 people. It's, we highly moderate it. Really good group of people helping one another out. I'm in there. I'm doing a live stream once a week. We do some happy hours now. and You know what I mean? It's just we're, we really have this, mm-hmm. especially in this time of COVID, but even, even past this, um, I think that's that's a, two places you can find me. Love it. Well, Rob, thank you again. As, as someone who, you know, you really inspire me in terms of your, your body of work you've put together in terms of building and teaching and connecting. Those are all verbs that are core to me as well. So I really, really admire the work you've done. And, and thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.